0: Uh, we were able to uh, to adopt a little girl over the Christmas break. We actually um, actually took her home from the hospital on Christmas Day. So uh, definitely a Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Praise the Lord for that. So uh, she was a she's a sweet little thing. So uh, we took her home uh, on Christmas Day, and so she's just over just over three three months old right now, so it's wonderful. And also, just as a side note, saw that in your uh, worship folder, there's that yellow piece of paper with the serve opportunities. One of those you'll see is um, at Florida Boulevard, they're having that Louisiana Baptist uh, foster and adoption seminar. And at Edgewater Baptist Church in New Orleans, where we are members, um, Amanda, actually, my wife, she worked to coordinate with Beth Green and we hosted this same event um, in New Orleans at Edgewater, so if you 're at all interested in foster care, um, orphan care, adoption, especially foster care, I think is where they put a lot of their attention in this particular seminar if you 're interested in that or know someone who 's interested, uh, definitely check out this event um, or, or contact Beth at the number that 's on the bottom of that of that yellow um, yellow sheet of paper but uh, we were, we were coming over here, and I asked our oldest daughter, Austin, or as we were getting ready to come over here, I asked our oldest daughter, Austin, who's five, if she remembered being here back in August, and she said, yeah, that's the place with the, uh, with the Kool-Aid and the sweet cookies. I was like, all right, so uh, churches spend thousands of dollars every year trying to figure out how to bring people in. Kool-Aid and sweet cookies, that's really all you need right there, so you're, you're good to go. Um, Good to go at that point. All right, let's look at and, and let's stand together as we, uh, as we read uh, the passage for, for Palm Sunday, uh, often known as the triumphal entry passage. And we're going to begin in Luke chapter 19, verse 28, and read down to verse 40. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethpage and Bethany, Near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? you shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to something that we may have heard several times before. But God, may we examine our own lives. May we examine our participation in the body in light of what you're teaching your people through this passage. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. This past semester, during the, uh, the fall semester, I had a chance to teach a couple of seminary classes at First Community Antioch Baptist Church over in the Gramercy-Lutcher area, so just down the river um, from here, and First Community is a National Baptist Church. Um, Crosspoint, uh, we're part of a, a Southern Baptist denomination, a, a grouping of churches. First Community is part of what's called the National Baptist uh, Convention of Churches. If you're not familiar with National Baptist Churches, just think of Whitney Houston's funeral. If you saw any, uh, any images or video from that, that was a National, uh, national Baptist Church. And National Baptists are historically the uh, African-American Baptist denomination. And just to be honest, the relationship has not always been what it should be between Southern Baptists and National Baptist Churches, but by God's grace and by the power of the gospel, a lot of those walls are falling down, and, and, and there's, there's a degree of cooperation and togetherness in the gospel, partnership in the gospel. And so I was there teaching some um, some seminary classes, And you can be incredibly encouraged to know that you have brothers and sisters at this church just down the river where Pastor Gaines is there, leading them toward love of God's word, toward being the church in in that place. I I was just blown away by by how many people in that church were excited about learning God's word and, and being a part of these seminary level classes there at the church. And I was asking Pastor Gaines one evening, why are you pushing your people so much toward this advanced study of God's word? Why, why are your people here so hungry for God's word? And he said something that I'll never forget. He said, you know, our church has always been good at whooping, but we haven't always known what we're whooping about. And you know what? When he said that, it became very clear to me that that's not a denominational issue, and it's certainly not a racial issue. It's a heart issue. Because it doesn't matter if you're part of a national Baptist church, a Pentecostal church, if you're at youth camp, if you're at a Baptist church with an organ, a piano, and a hymn book, or if you're here this morning, we can all be guilty of whooping, of, of expressing ourselves and having no clue what we're singing about, what we're saying with our mouth, and the reality is that our theology should drive our worship, and our worship should drive our theology and our theology should drive our worship and so on until eternity when we worship forever because we know exactly in fullness who our God truly is. And so we're going to take that thought and and take that back to Luke 19. But before we do that, I want to define a couple of words because it's easy to use a word like theology or use a word like worship and to become very vague theological, abstract terms that you feel like, I really, I've really i heard that word, I don't really know what it means. When we say theology, we simply mean who God is and what he's doing in the world. We're gonna take the, just that definition, who God is and what he's doing in the world. In other words, theology does not equal academic classroom. You could say, I'm not really good at school or I'm not really good at learning all these things. We're all theologians. We all have understandings and ideas about who God is and how he's at work in the world. And then the second word, worship, is simply our response to who God is and what he's doing in the world. Because you may be like me and have zero musical ability, not even a little bit of musical ability, but you can still be involved in worship. Worship is not scening that we do on Sunday morning. Worship is our response individually and corporately to who God is and what he's doing in the world. So our theology drives our worship, our worship drives our theology, our theology drives our worship. We continue that cycle throughout our lives. Let's keep that idea, go back to Luke chapter 19. Excuse me. Luke chapter 19, in verse 28, it begins, after Jesus had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Have you ever been on a long trip? Maybe a long trip with kids, which is like triply or quadruply a long trip when you're with kids. When it says, after he had said these things, you have to go all the way back to Luke chapter 9, verse 57, where Luke says, Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem, and he began going toward Jerusalem, and Kevin has been walking us through what Jesus said along the way. And so in chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, Luke says, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and finally he's going to make it when you get to chapter 19. Um, so the disciples probably many times said, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we? That's what I hear in my head anyway. Are we there yet? And so they finally get there. In Luke chapter 19, verse 28, it says, after he had said these things, all those parables, all those teachings, all of what he had been telling them about being disciples, what it meant for him to be the king, the anointed coming one. After he had said all these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And we understand because you've been going through Luke, Jesus is not going on vacation to Jerusalem. There is going to be a feast. They're going up for the feast of the Passover, but he's most certainly not going on vacation. He's going there because he knows he's going to die. He knows that the time has come And he's going to be crucified, and they are going to see, maybe for the first time, just who he really is. And so he's going there on purpose. But he's also not going to take a taxi when he gets to Jerusalem. Because in Luke chapter 19, verse 29, it says, When he approached Bethpage in Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt. Tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? you shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt in verse 33, the owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. Okay, so what's going on in this passage is Jesus introduces his transportation um, in into Jerusalem. What What's he doing here? H- have you ever been sent to look for something? You hate to be that guy who's like the gopher. <laughs> you know, when you go to the big event and you have no skills to contribute to what's going on, so they make you the gopher, like to go and get everything. You'll notice that the disciples are not named by Luke here, probably just to keep from embarrassing them, that they were the ones sent to go get the... Uh, Go get the Colt. Um, our, our high school baseball coach, when the freshman would come in to high school baseball practice, he would always send them to go find the key to the coach's box. Now if you know anything about baseball, the coach's box is the area along the third and first base baseline where the coach stands. So the freshmen go and 30 minutes later they return from the clubhouse, coach I have no idea where the key to the coach's box is. And then everyone laughs at them and they feel like freshmen again. So y- you hate to be the one Who's sent to look for something? But Jesus says, I want you to go and I want you to find a cult. Now, there, there's two options here, and I, I'm inclined to one, but the other makes perfect sense. Either Jesus has gone ahead and he's planned for his disciples to go to this particular, particular location and find a cult. In other words, he's prepared ahead of time. He went ahead, he found the cult, he talked to the owners, he said, I'm going to send my disciples. And so they're going to go there. And in fact, that's probably the likely option. Equally possible, though, is Jesus, simply because of who he is, knows there's a cult out there. They're going to be able to go and find that cult. And so he just knows ahead of time and he sends the disciples out. It doesn't make a huge difference to the passage which one it is, but those are probably our two options. Either Jesus has prepared ahead of time or he just knows ahead of time there's a cult there. And so they're going to go. and and get this colt. Why a colt, though? Um, Our rivals in high school, they were the donkeys. Nobody picks the donkeys. You don't just randomly pick that I want to be on the team with the donkeys. Um, I promise you, you don't want to do that. So uh, we were the Broncos, the wild, strong horses, and they were the donkeys. I'm so glad I was a Bronco. Um, And and so they they were our rivals in high school, but nobody picks a donkey why does Jesus pick a donkey here? Well, it becomes very clear he picks a donkey on purpose, but you have to go back to the Old Testament. You have to go back to the book of Zechariah. If we go back to Zechariah, and I think I put Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, on your note sheet there, but it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The context. If we went back to Zechariah, and I encourage you to do this when your when your New Testament Bible when when it maybe gives you a footnote or it gives you a note at the bottom, um, maybe to the side of the page, and it mentions an Old Testament text, go back and read that Old Testament text and read the verses in context. If we go back to Zechariah, we see that in Zechariah that the Lord is telling his people, I am going to fight for you. I am going to defend you. I am going to rescue you. The day will come when I will rescue my people and the king, when he comes, my Messiah, my anointed one, when he comes, he will come riding on a donkey. And so when Jesus In this triumphal entry, in this this Palm Sunday event, when he picks the donkey, he's picking that donkey for one reason, because he is going to enact, enact for his disciples this prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. He's going to say, you remember what you learned when you were in preschool and they talked about the Messiah who was going to come on a donkey? I'm about to do that. I'm going to be that person. I'm going to be that rescuer for you. So that's what Jesus is doing here. He is showing them who he is, what he's come to do, except there's a very important word in Zechariah 9. It says that Jesus will come, or that the king will come righteous, having salvation, humble, humble and mounted on a donkey. You may know that during this time period, during the first century, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of anticipation it seems like For the coming of the Messiah. The people had always waited for the coming of the Messiah. But when the Messiah came, he wasn't going to come on a donkey. He was going to become, he was going to come on a horse. He was going to come on my Bronco. Because he was going to be the conquering warrior. Who would show up, defeat the Romans, and rescue the people. Except Jesus messes with their idea of who the Messiah is going to be. And he shows up on the donkey. Not the most conquering warrior-like animal, if you've ever seen a donkey. He shows up on the donkey because he says, I am going to be your savior, I'm going to be your rescuer, but I'm going to become in a humble manner, not in a conquering manner like you might expect. And so he's showing them who he is. Let's go back to Luke 19 and see what happens when he shows up on the donkey. Verse 35, so they brought the donkey, or the colt, it says in Luke 19, brought it to Jesus And they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest." And so we see that Jesus has his transportation into Jerusalem, and so now he's going to make his famous entry. There's something we need to understand when we read a passage like this in the Gospels. When you read a passage like this in the Gospels, remember that a very similar story is probably going to be told in the other Gospels. When we say Gospels, we're talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those first four books of the New Testament— and sometimes, sometimes to show off, sometimes just to make it plain, we'll use a phrase like synoptic gospels. If you ever hear the phrase synoptic gospels, don't be scared away, it just means Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they share so much material um, in, in common. And so we, we have this idea that when you read a passage in the gospels, you need to be aware that that passage that probably shows up in a similar way in the other gospels. And this is one of those points in church as we're becoming better readers of God's word. Don't be scared away by the relationship among the gospels. Uh, sometimes that has been used as an attack on God's word or as an attack on Christianity. In fact, it shouldn't be scaring us away. It should make us excited to explore the similarities and the differences in how God has given us this material in the gospels. And I say all of that Because the Palm Sunday triumphal entry passage that you're probably used to, Luke messes with that a little bit. I say he messes with it. He's giving particular emphases that are different than the other Gospels. If if you look back, when Jesus is coming in in verse 35, or actually verse 36, as as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. If we go back and read the other Gospels, what are they spreading on the road there? Palm leaves. I was so thankful not to show up this morning to see palm leaves <laughs> spread out because it was going to mess up my whole thing. But uh, there, in, in some of the gospel accounts, there, there are palm leaves on the ground. Luke talks about coats on the ground. And some of the gospels combine those and you get palm leaves and coats on the ground and the donkey's tripping everywhere as he's trying to go down the road. But you, you get this idea, why does Luke not include palm leaves? We don't know entirely why that's the case. A good option, why Luke does not include palm leaves, is for these people. Remember we talked about they were expecting the conquering Messiah who would come. And palm leaves, in people's minds, gave off a very strong nationalistic idea. This, this strong, here comes our warrior to defeat your kingdom over there. And Luke, when he writes his gospel, he tends to downplay that idea. So he probably doesn't include the palm leaves because he's downplaying a lot of this nationalistic, I laid my country's flag out on the ground type, type of idea. And then when we get to verse 38, we find out that all the little kid things that we learned in Sunday school, Luke messes that up too because he begins, blessed is the king. What word did he leave off? He left off, Hosanna, (laughs) because all of our Palm Sunday triumphal entry stories, when Jesus comes in, what do the people shout? They shout, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke doesn't include Hosanna here. Why? Well, once again, we, we can't really get inside of Luke's head and know exactly, but it was common, Hosanna was an Aramaic term. It was a term that would have only made sense to people living in particular areas of that world. And so most likely Luke is is writing to a group of people who wouldn't have understood the term. It would have made no sense to them. So why include it? He, He just doesn't include it. But what he does say in verse 38 is blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. If you went to Matthew and Mark, and looked at this same passage, the word keen would not be there. All you would find in Matthew and Mark is, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke inserts the phrase keen, because he wants to make absolutely sure that they make the connection back to Zechariah 9. Remember we talked about Zechariah 9 a few minutes ago, about how the keen will come humbly seated on the donkey? Luke is going to include the phrase king here because he wants to make absolutely sure that they understand who Jesus is and what he's coming to do. He's coming as the king who will rescue his people. And it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. If you'll look, if your Bible has a footnote or maybe a little note down the margin of the Bible, that phrase from uh, Luke 19, verse 38, It comes from Psalm 118, verse 26. When the pilgrims were coming into Jerusalem for these feasts, when they came in, there were a couple of major, major feasts. Passover, Pentecost, Feast of the Tabernacles. When they would come in together for these things, they would sing something called the Hallel Psalms, H-A-L-L-E-L. They would sing the Hillel Psalms. And those are Psalms 113 to 118. So the people from the time that they were little kids, when they would come to these celebrations, they would sing these Psalms. Uh, my family, we're not particularly musically inclined, but some families, when they get together, they sing together. Um, that's what they would do. Like, it'd be like you came together at your family reunion and you sang. Uh, Thank God we didn't do that at our family reunion. But uh, I know people do those type of things. It's not a bad thing. Um, but when they would come together to these feasts, they would sing these psalms. And as they saw pilgrims coming to the city, they would sing these psalms out as they would go up to the temple. And so when they see Jesus come, they sing this psalm, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they're responding to who they see Jesus to be. But how do the people watching respond to these disciples? Look at what the Pharisees do in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Probably what they're saying is, tell your disciples to be quiet because either, number one, they're about to cause us a lot of trouble because the Romans are going to get angry about this, that the king is coming, or, They're saying, rebuke your disciples. They don't really know what they're talking about. (laughs) They think that they know who you are, but they've got it all wrong. And you know the irony there is the people didn't understand fully who Jesus was at this point. They were responding to what they'd seen, but they didn't understand completely who he was. It's so easy to sit on the sideline and critique everyone else's worship when you're not worshiping at all. (laughs) They weren't responding at all. They were, they were rebuking. They were critiquing. We're all good at rebuking and critiquing, but we're also not good at participating sometimes. We have to be very careful about this. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> very careful about that mentality because that's the mentality that the Pharisees are taking right here. You know what Jesus says? He says, I tell you, If these become silent, even the stones will cry out. The verse on the front of our worship folder this morning. If these disciples, even though they may be imperfect in how they understand me, I have come, I have come as keen, and worship absolutely must happen. You know an incredible thing about this verse right here? That if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Did you know that the worshipers do become silent? When Jesus is betrayed, when he's taken for crucifixion, what happens to all these worshipers? They disappear. They run away. They, they don't want anything to do with him. But you know what? The stones do cry out. One stone cries out very clearly about who Jesus is. The stone in front of his tomb. There will be, when the worshipers grow silent, there will be one stone that cries out and worship saying, I know who is in this tomb, I know he is the king, I know he is the rescuer, and he will come to rescue his people. And so when the people become silent, the stone in front of Jesus' tomb does cry out in worship. And that's a piece of the story that we can so easily overlook that Philippians chapter two tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. When Jesus shows up as savior, as rescuer, as king, worship must happen and it will happen. So our theology will drive our worship. And here's the great thing about this. The story really doesn't end here. When you skip ahead past the events of the Passion Week and you get to Luke chapter 24, you get a couple of different stories in Luke chapter 24. You get the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus shows up to them and tells them more about who he is by explaining the scriptures to him. Then he shows up in the upper room, and he explains to them again who he is, and then they go out, and he prepares for his ascension into heaven, and he tells them again who he is. He's constantly explaining more and more of who he is, and then the very last two verses in Luke, and I hope I wrote these on your paper. I may, I may not have. The very last two verses in Luke are Luke chapter 24, verses 52 and 53, and it says, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple praising God the whole book of Luke after Jesus has shown who he is the book of Luke ends in worship as the people finally see just who Jesus is and they respond to him our theology drives our worship our worship dri- drives us to know more about Jesus the more we know about Jesus the more we want to respond to him and worship and we create this cycle Okay, so that's, that's the idea. So what? <laughs> what, are, what are the implications of this? The reality is that it's so easy, both in this setting on Sunday mornings and our life individually, to separate theology and worship. Some people just naturally are more inclined to Bible study than they are to maybe music or singing and worship. Some people love the musical worship and they just kind of endure the sermon time. (laughs) And and, and so we have these two personalities, these two ideas that I really love the theology, I really love the music, and let's just be honest, we have to tie those two together. We, We do not keep those two separated because there are dangers that come when we separate those. When we separate theology from worship, the first thing that shows up is pride. This idea that we value our own knowledge more than the one that we're learning about. If you find your own participation in Bible study is more important than the time that you spend responding to the Lord, be very careful that pride doesn't come up at that time. The other thing that shows up is apathy. This idea that I learn about God and it makes no impact on my life. I learn about him, my head becomes full, but my heart becomes cold and that's a dangerous place to be. That's often what people talk about when students go to seminary, but it's not just a seminary thing. It's easy to go to Sunday school, to go to Sunday night Bible studies, to learn and get our heads full, but our heart is totally cold toward the Lord. What happens when we go the other direction and we lean toward worship, but we don't think about theology? Our worship becomes very human-centered. It becomes more about me and my performance than it does about the one I'm responding to. Or our our time together in worship becomes totally thoughtless. Do you remember one of the 10 Commandments that says, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain? That commandment doesn't mean just don't use God's name in a cuss word. That's not just what it means. We can take the Lord's name in vain by gathering together, me standing down here saying words with my mouth, that are nowhere connected to my head or to my heart. It becomes thoughtless. I just repeat it because I know the words. That's taking the Lord's name in vain because I'm saying the Lord's name, but I'm using it in a very thoughtless, worthless sort of way, and, and that's not how we're supposed to, to be as we gather together as worshipers. So what are some of the implications of this? How do you, how do you take some of this home? Um, here's the first thing. If I show up on Sunday morning And this time feels hollow, or it feels manufactured, or you have a hard time connecting with what's going on on Sunday morning. The first thing I probably need to check is, have I spent time getting to know the Lord during the week? Because if you have not been getting to know the Lord during the week, this time will feel hollow. It will feel fake because you have nothing to respond to. You're not responding out of an overflow of what you learned about the Lord and his word during the week. It's something you're just trying to make happen on a Sunday morning. So we can't, we can't divide those two things. The second is, and please be careful on this, worship is not less advanced or less intellectual than theology. Sometimes when we come together on Sunday mornings, we can tr- treat the musical worship time as like the preview event to give everybody enough time to get in before the sermon starts. Be, be very careful uh, about that attitude. I love the fact that you, that you have the event coming up this Wednesday with Mosaic, that they are coming to use music, to use worship, to teach you about God's word. Thankfully, our, our modern musical worship is becoming more and more theological. As, as praise and worship songs started to kind of come in and replace hymns a little bit, and, and contemporary worship started to, Started to show up on the scene about ten or fifteen years ago. Some of those opening songs, when I go or those early songs, when I go back and listen to them, you're like, "Oh my goodness, I can't believe we first sang those because they're, there's no, there's no depth. It's just you've seen the same words twenty five times over and over." But the, the great thing is, so much of the new contemporary theological music that's coming out is so theological and it is so tied to Scripture. And I always remember what my grandma told me about why she loved hymns so much. She loved hymns because she felt like every hymn told a story, and every hymn would preach the gospel. And you know, when I started to think about that, it's not every hymn that that is the case for, but a lot of them are that way. And we want our musical worship to be a time where you learn. Some of you, and you may could raise your hand for this, some of you memorize things and learn things When you've seen them. My wife is this way. And I've watched our kids. Our kids have learned their days of the week, their months of the year, their Bible verses when they've seen them. Me, that kind of makes my stomach hurt. But uh, I I just don't do that. But uh, it's amazing to see little kids. And it may not be little kids. It may be you. You're like, I remember words to a song. I couldn't remember just a saying. But if it's words to a song, I can remember that. Um, And that's a great way to learn. It's an incredible way to learn by, by putting music with our theology. And the last thing is simply that worship can happen anytime in response to what God does in your life. If God is at work in your life during the week, you're in in line at the grocery store and your kids manage not to throw a fit and the God of the universe showed up in that moment that your kids did not throw a fit, it's okay to worship at that moment because you have seen God's work in your life. I know that's kind of a playful example, but we see God at work all the time in our lives, and we should constantly say, I see God, I know God, I'm going to respond to God. So how do people live like this? How do we combine theology and worship? First, we will treasure every opportunity to learn and know the Lord. Every opportunity You say, I want to know more about God. I want to know more about Christ. I want to know more about his word. We will desire to worship him because of what we see him doing in our midst. That when Crosspoint gathers together, you gather together out of an overflow of what God has been doing in your lives during the week. And then don't miss the last thing. Because theology and worship can become very in-house, We can close in on ourselves very quickly. But John Piper, in his book about missions called Let the Nations Be Glad, the very first sentence of that book says that missions exist because worship does not. Missions exist because worship does not. The reason that Kevin and Byron and Nick are in Uganda right now the reason that Crosspoint constantly sends out folks and continually goes out to share the gospel, the only reason we do that is because there are people who do not know the Lord and are not responding to him in worship. Theology drives worship, but when theology and worship are not present, we must be involved in missions. And missions exist right now. This is the church that sends people out because there are people who do not know the Lord and are not responding to him in worship, And so we come to the conclusion, and we've talked about theology and worship, and so it would be very bad if we did not respond corporately um, to the Lord and to his word and, and to this story of how Jesus came in to Jerusalem. And so what we're going to do, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing together corporately a very theological psalm, a psalm that's based entirely on scripture, and we are going to respond to who God is And then we're going to go out and be a people who learn about the Lord, who worship the Lord, and who are involved in missions because there are people who do not know and are not worshiping. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the way that you show us yourself. God, you show us your character. God, that you are good and you are gracious and you are merciful. You've given us your word to show us how you're at work in the world. God, we want to be a people who know you, We want to be a people who respond to you in worship. We want to be a people who are constantly on mission because we know we are surrounded by people who are not worshiping their creator and their savior. God, as we respond right now as a corporate body, may our hearts be full of your word, of your character, of your work in our lives. And then God, send us out to be your people in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing together?